day on The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. In Jesus Christ, we were chosen for God so loved the world that whosoever, that's anybody, regardless of the circumstances, we were chosen and now we have to choose and we choose to receive Christ to run my life and I'll not run my life, to run your life and you'll not run your life. And then all of a sudden, we're in the family of God and all of a sudden, all of these things we encounter begin to take on new life and eternal meaning. The truth is, God wants you to lead a life of significance and satisfaction. Welcome to The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Today, Dr. Young begins his message, Never Satisfied, and brings you proven truth on the only way to find real and lasting satisfaction in life. Stay with us and hear more from Dr. Young on The Winning Walk. Now, here's Dr. Ed Young with today's message, Never Satisfied. We're starting the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a book of sheer philosophy. It's the only book in the Bible that presents life without God. It's a book about meaninglessness, but it has a great deal of meaning. Say, how can this be? We've already discovered that it asks all the big questions of life that all of us need to ask, we must ask, we should ask, but we sort of gloss them over and avoid them, and we come head to head with them, they get a little hard, we have to think, and, and therefore we sort of hide these, but it deals with all the big questions. Who am I? Where did I come from? Where am I going? The real big one, why am I here? Why are you here? Why am I here? Pretty big questions. This is what Solomon, writing his autobiography, kept asking over and over again, and he came to the same conclusion. We'll see it for 12 chapters. He said, life does not any significance. He said, everybody's life is like spitting in the wind. It's smoke. Has no eternal value. Is empty. It's void. Has no lasting significance. Now, we know that ancient man was most fearful of death. Medieval man was most fearful of hell. Modern man, we're most fearful of a life that has no meaning, no significance. And therefore, Solomon is the ultimate philosopher. You know the difference between philosophy and theology? I've tried to state this many times. The philosopher says, I'm looking for God. The theologian says, God is looking for you. 
Philosophy are words going up. Theology is the word of God coming down. Philosophy is looking for a life that has relevance. Theology gives us a life that gives relevance. So we're in a book of philosophy. Boy, do I need that? Absolutely. Every searcher, every honest person, every doubter, every skeptic, every believing Christian needs to understand what Solomon is doing to us in the book of Ecclesiastes. He's waking us up saying, ask this most basic question. And you say, you mean Ecclesiastes is void of any reference to God? No, I didn't say that. God is spoken of in Ecclesiastes, but God is pictured almost in a, a, a deistic view. The deists believe that God created the world, and then he backed away from the world and said, lots of luck, I'm out of here. Deist. Sometimes you think he's a pantheist. Pantheism is God is in everything. He's in the rocks, he's in the moon, he's in the stars, and sometimes you say, He's a pantheist. Sometimes Solomon sounds like a, a Hindu or a Buddhist. And to summarize all that, he says, the real genius of life is to not have a life, is to nullify life, is to make life a simple vacuum and not respond to vacuums, not respond to mountaintops or valleys. And they would say life should be No motions, no right, no wrong, no up, no down. Mm-hmm. And when you get to nirvana and you're, mm-hmm, then when breath leaves your body, it's no big deal because you're just absorbed up into the eternal mist. Sometimes Solomon sounds like that. So there's references to God, but it's not the God that we know in Abraham, Isaac, Jacob revealed in Jesus Christ. He's looking at things under the sun. He's a philosopher. One school of philosophy said life is just a matter of chance. That's nihilism. Roll the dice. Man, you sure were lucky. Your last name's Rockefeller. Man, boy. Life is just a thing of chance, nihilism. Sometimes we see Solomon as a nihilist, if you look at it closely. Sometimes life is a thing of choice. That's secularism, humanism. I determine my own destiny. I am the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. I run my life by what I do and the choices and decisions that I make. Some people look at life like that, and once in a while you see old soul, old man, that's where he's coming down. And sometimes you see life as chosen. That's determinism. We really don't decide your DNA, your environment. Every decision, every choice you and I would make is already predetermined. Now, they can't decide who the determiner is, but that's one philosophical view of life. So we read through Ecclesiastes, we see all kinds of things, and that's healthy for us to understand, ladies and gentlemen, 
what life is like for those who consider life only on the basis of what's under the sun without any real relevance or understanding of transcendence of him who is above the sun. What a difference. You see, God has set down two poles for us. There is good and there's evil. There we have it. As long as we're clear as biblical theologians, as Christians, as to what is good and what is evil, we're in good shape. But what has happened to us? There's sort of a muddy, muddy, muddiness that's created between that which is good and that which is evil. I could take many things to illustrate that. I think I'd use sex. Oh, I awakened two men back here. I'm sorry. <laughs> there was a day 50, 60 years ago when there was a general consensus in the culture of the United States that sex was exclusive to marriage. No one much debated that 50, 60 years ago. But then finally, we moved into another kind of vein, and sex was okay if you're engaged. If you have a ring, you stated yourself, sex is all right if you're engaged. And then it moved down, well, sex is okay if you really love each other. I love you, you love me. That, that makes this intimate relationship okay. And then it moved down a little further and said, well, if they're two consenting adults, it's fine. And then it moved down. It's simply a recreational thing. It's a natural instinct that is fulfilled. It has no eternal or relevant or sacred meaning. And that's what's happened to us. You have good and you have evil. And now it's all muddy in here. And so many areas of ethics. You say, how did it happen? We've looked at this before. When our high schools and colleges and universities have for decades said there's no right, there's no wrong, what is true for you and true for me may be two different things, and there are no absolutes. This is where you end up, and you have a whole score of Harvey Weinsteins appearing on the scene, and you wonder, well, where did this come from? When there's no absolutes. In our culture, this is the results. And some of those who are part of the sort of functional agnosticism, they say, oh, man, this is a terrible, terrible thing. This is what has been advocating situational ethics for generations. We've been teaching. We've been teaching over and over again. And that is life lived without any reference to God above the sun. And this is exactly what Solomon is talking about in his autobiography. The latter years of his life, we call the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, when you read Ecclesiastes, let's be honest. If you tried to read it, it's tough to read, isn't it? Solomon never took a course in English on how to write your memoirs. I can guarantee you that. Because all of a sudden he moves from here to there and there's no transition you can figure out. It's like 
this is why carrots are so good for you. And then he moves and says, once upon a time I was flying an airplane. Where's the transition? I, I missed it, Solomon. You have that all the way through the book. And so now he's taken us a long way. We looked at chapter 1, and what did he say in chapter 1? Do you remember? He says, what you're doing now will happen in the future, and it's already happened in the past. He said, life is cyclical, therefore life has no meaning. In chapter 2, he says, let me tell you, I've tried out everything on this earth to try to find meaning. I've tried power. I've tried sex. I've tried politics. I have tried money. He said, I have tried it all, and I have discovered in my vast experience that none of that makes sense. All of that is it's smoke. It gives no permanent meaning to life. Then he comes to chapter 3. And we listen to that because that's sound philosophy. He said, there's a time to be born. There's a time to die. There's a time to dance. And there's a time to cry. And there's a time for this and a time for that. He gives us those 14 little couplets there. And we all say, that's right, that's right. And he even implies in this, he lets some kind of God sort of peek out of heaven. And he says some basic fundamental truths. He said, but God has planted eternity in our hearts. Isn't that true? All of us, there, there's something more than this life. We're not going to get it all here, understanding all here. Experience. And so he's planted eternity in our hearts, fundamental truth. And then he says, everything is beautiful in its own way, in its own time. And we know that that has validity. And he talks about grace. He talks about the hand of God working in history and the good, the bad, and the indifferent. And so we see him moving through here, and we're hopeful about Solomon. Then we come to chapter 4. That's what we're looking at today. I won't walk you through all the verses. You may do it on your own, but this is how he handles these four areas he's going to look at. He says, I've seen this. I've looked at that. I've seen this. I've looked at that. And then in the middle of these areas, he does comparisons. He compares this to that and that to this. He does comparisons all the way through. We like comparisons, don't we? The other day, somebody said, do you think that the University of Alabama football team could beat the Cleveland Browns? Those of you that may not understand that, <laughs> Alabama's the top of the collegiate scale, and the Cleveland Browns are probably the bottom of the NFL scale, but if they played one another, who do you think would win? See, that's a comparison. We like to compare a lot of things. What's the best automobile to drive? You know, what is the most effective corporation? We compare things. That's what Solomon does. He walks us through four areas here that we're going to look at in the fourth chapter. And he says, I've seen this, I've seen this, I've looked at that, I've experienced that, and I've compared this to this and that to that. Watch it as we look at it. Look at the first one. Chapter 4, Ecclesiastes. You can't find Ecclesiastes? It's easy. Go to the middle of your Bible, not counting the, the notes in the back. You'll run into Psalms. Turn right, you'll find Proverbs, also written by Solomon. And then you'll bump into... Then you'll bump into... You'll bump into... 
Okay, that's where we are, a book of sheer philosophy, asking the questions. Look at chapter 4. Solomon says, then I looked again at all the acts of oppression, I'm using injustice, which were being done under the sun. And behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, those who were caught in injustice, and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors was no one, it says, comfort but to confront them. He talks about injustice. There's sort of a built-inness of all of us to recognize injustice. Injustice, it's all around us. We, we learned it as children. Remember the story of, of Cinderella? Yeah. Cinderella, you remember she was brought up by an evil stepmother, had terrible stepsisters. They hated her. They abused her. But they had the, the ball, and she went, and she had on that glass slipper, and the prince saw her and fell in love with her, and she had to leave early because the, the chariot was turning into a pumpkin. If you not read it, you ought to read it. Keith reads it every night before he goes to sleep. <laughs> but but it, it's a wonderful story. And, and all the prince has is that glass slipper, and he's trying to find who it was that wore that glass slipper. He goes around trying it on all the young maidens, and he tried it on the, the evil stepsisters, and, and they tried to get in that glass slipper. They wouldn't fit them, but he slipped it on Cinderella, and she became his princess. That's injustice that was countered by justice, right? Beautiful story. Now, what if one of those evil stepsisters had somehow squeezed in that glass slipper? That would be wrong, wouldn't it? That would be injustice. See, we're taught early on the difference between justice and injustice. We see it today. We see so much injustice in our society. Many things just pop up in my mind. Man, I, I can't get over the story of that family in California in which the parents had their 13 children chained to their bed, sleeping in their own waist, virtually starving to death. I just can't imagine the, the injustice given to those children. And now many of them have grown to be adults. I mean, I... I can't even fathom that. That's, that's beyond the pale of my understanding. Such gross injustice. But I'm proud of a doctor who lives in this area. He went on Facebook. He said years ago, one of those, that family lived in Fort Worth, and one of the little girls was in his class and said, I was a part of badgering her, belittling her, bullying her, said she came in, skin and bones, the same purple dress, day after day after day, said she was very smelly and said we laughed at her and abused her and bullied her, and he confessed on the Internet, I'm so ashamed of that. Injustice. It's a powerful thing in our society. Before any of us gets too pious, 
All you have to do is go to the second Metropolitan Houston. We've got two Houstons I've talked about and put on the shoes of some of those who are trapped in poverty and a welfare condition, second and third generation, where a mother is a heroin addict and you've got all these little children trying to survive. Let me tell you something. There's an injustice there that's overwhelming to us in America today. Injustice. And he talks about injustice. But, you know, under the world, you know what Solomon says? He said it doesn't matter if it's justice or injustice. He said, ultimately, doesn't make any difference anyway. We're all going to die. Doesn't matter. That's what life is like under the sun. A lack of a cry for justice. Injustice makes no difference. And then Solomon moves from injustice. He moves to success. He deals with success. He said, well, maybe success will give meaning. Verse 4, he said, I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is a result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. He said, this too is meaningless. This too is vanity. He talks about competitive man, how we compete today. We want to get ahead. We want to have more. We want to be able to do more. And, and so we, there's a great competitiveness in our society, not only here in America, but around the world. Man, somebody pointed out to me on the Internet this week that in Saudi Arabia, they have an annual camel convention. Over 30,000 camels are brought in. They give prizes for over $50 million to winners in this camel convention, and they have a beauty contest for camels. True story. I can't make this up, folks. And this past year, they disqualified 12 of the camels because their owners had put Botox in their heads and their ears and their lips to make their heads bigger and their, their, uh, their ears bigger and their lips bigger, so they disqualified them. They were so competitive, Saudi Arabia putting Botox in camels. Are you ready for that? Solomon talks about competitiveness. Be competitive, competitive, and there's a certain wonder about being competitive. I like competition. I, I like people who are competitive. I, I know a man who came to this area many, many years ago. He, he, he could speak very poor English. He applied to be a dishwasher, and the owner of the restaurant said, you don't speak English well enough. He said, I'll work hard. I'll improve my English. He said, no, I can't hire you. And the young teenager looked at him. He said, sir, one day I'll come and buy this restaurant from you. And the owner just sort of shrugged his shoulders, and six years went by. He got a job washing dishes at another restaurant. He saved. He worked. He saved, and he worked. And finally, when things were sort of down in the market and Restaurant business was not blooming. He walked in in a, co a coat, a suit and tie, and talked to the owner and made him an offer and bought the restaurant. And he looked at him and he said, do you remember me? He said, no, I, we've never met. He said, oh, yes, I was a young man that you wouldn't hire me a dishwasher. And I told you one day I'd come back and buy this restaurant. He said, I just bought it from you. <laughs> True story. I like competitiveness. He's talking about some people work and they're competitive. That's their whole life. 
And then he comes and talks another kind of man on the road to success. He said, the fool folds his hands and, and consumes his own flesh. We do an injustice in this country when we provide all the means of staying alive to someone who is healthy and strong. We take away their dignity. We take away their life. And I don't think we ought to help anybody who is healthy and strong as long as there's an unmanned mop or broom anywhere in this area. We do an injustice. That's not right. And that's what Solomon is saying. He said, you, you eat your own flesh at this. So here's a competitive man. Here is the person who becomes a lazy man. And that's what happened with the idea of entitlement. And then he moves, he says, verse 6, one hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor. In other words, he's saying there has to be balance in our vocational endeavor. There has to be hard work over here, but there has to be rest over here. See, that's balance. Somebody who just works, 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 works. Oh, I'm doing it for the family. I'm doing it so we'll have. And they wake up one day and say, Oh, what's wrong with my kids? They're so rotten. I'll tell you what was wrong. Mom or dad weren't there when they needed to be there. That's what's wrong. They lost balance, work, recreation, recreation, rest, work, rest, work, rest. He's pointing out the balanced kind of person who moves through life. Then he moves and talks about another kind of person, someone who is a soloist. Someone who just lives in and of himself. It's a picture, really, of the Christmas personality, Scrooge. He said, there was a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son or a brother, yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches. He never asked, and for whom am I laboring, depriving myself of pleasure? He just worked all the time, worked all the time, and he accumulated more and more. He said, look what I've done. No reason for it. No reason for it. A reporter was interviewing a man who was very wealthy in, in a city not far from here. And the man was an entrepreneur, very successful. Everybody knew him. He was an exceedingly wealthy man. And the reporter said, tell me your story. He said, well, I'm a rags to riches kind of guy. He said, I started with nothing. He said, my wife and I got married. We had $5 to our name. He said, we were living with her folks and said, I went out and bought four or five apples or all I could with $5. He said, I shined up those apples and put them in some uh, wrapping paper that I got. And, and I went out and sold them on the street. He said, I went and sold those apples and made a profit and went and got some more apples and sold them, made a profit. And I went more. He said, I, I sold apples for a solid year until my wife and I had enough money to, to rent a little one-room place where we could live. And, and the reporter was writing it down. He said, what a fabulous story of success. He said, then what happened? He said, well, my wife's grandfather died and left us $22 million. Yeah, yeah. Solomon says, you better be careful how you think of success. Oh, look what I have done. He said, all of this pilgrimage towards success, 
doesn't have any significance or any meaning. Let me tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. Success in the world's eye and failure in the world's eye, they both lie to you. And I'll try to say it now. I should save it for later, but I cannot. Success is simply being as best you can where God would have you in his plan and his purpose and using his gifts to make a difference in this world. That is success. You can't measure it in any kind of tangible way. That's what Solomon's telling us. He talks about injustice. He talks about justice. He compares them. He says, well, it really doesn't make a difference in the long run. He talks about success. He talks about faith. Well, it really doesn't make any difference in the long run. It doesn't have any meaning. We're all going to die. And then he moves down. He talks about loneliness. Verse 9, two are better than one because they have good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift them up. Talking about loneliness. It's a difference in being lonely and being alone. I spent a long time every week for many, many, many years alone. It's a part of my vocation. It is what I must do. I have to do. The being alone is good, fine, it's healthy, it's, it's invigorating if you know how to handle it. Being alone. But it's another thing to be lonely. To be lonely. There, there is an emotional loneliness. I remember hitchhiking from Laurel, Mississippi to Tuscaloosa, Alabama, entering college as a freshman because I had a job there working. And you remember what it was? I measured the sewer uh, depth in the streets of Tuscaloosa. So I went there and I hitchhiked there and I didn't really know anybody hardly at the university and I was lonely. I met some people and I, I moved on out, but in, uh, that was an emotional, a situational kind of loneliness. We've all experienced that. We move away, we change, we, and th there's, that's a, an emotional loneliness, but also there is a Chronical kind of loneliness, chronic loneliness. What does that mean? It means that sometimes we just live in the past. I remember meeting a guy years ago. He had a big button on and said, I attended the Chicago World's Fair. That had been 30 years before then. He was still wearing that big button. <laughs> and you talked to him for five minutes. He said, you know, I attended the Chicago World's Fair. I said, boy, that's great. I, man, I can't wait to hear about it. That defined his life. I know people in the military 20, 30 years ago, and, and you talk to them five minutes, they're been to tell you about the days they were in the military. That defines their life. Or somebody who had a great tragedy, and they still say, you talk, you introduce them all the By the way, you know I had a regular, and, and they never get over it. That creates loneliness. And sometimes it, there's a negativity in us. You go to the doctor, you get a clean bill of health, and you say, doctor, that is fine, but you know, in my family, there's this disease that strikes so many of them. I mean, 
There's a negativity there, and that will make you lonely because people get sick and tired of hearing all my complaints, all my problems, what happened to me yesterday, and I say simply, get over it. Grow up. I, I see people that tell me the same thing over and over and over and over again. I said, my goodness, there's something wrong with me. No, something's wrong with that person. There is a loneliness there. You know, I was divorced. My wife left me. And I, get over it. <laughs> it will mean that you're going to be lonely if you live in the past or I live in the past or you don't grow up and I don't grow up, and that is chronic loneliness. Solomon's talking about that. He said, two are better than one. Three are better than one. Four are better than one. You're lonely. Let me tell you something. You jump right in the middle of this church, give us half a chance, and your loneliness will go away. C.S. Lewis talks about need love, how we all need love, and we do. He talks about gift love, how we are to give love. And I've talked about the, the golden rule, doing to others as you'd have them doing to you. You know what that means? Doing to others as you would have them do unto you, what you need is that which you give. That's gift love. I need somebody to listen to me. Well, listen to somebody. That's how you get people to listen to you. Well, I need encouragement. Encourage somebody. Encouragement will come back to you. That is gift love, and there is need love, and there is appreciative love. Man, Lord, I thank you. I praise you, and, and, and I want to give gratitude to you. An attitude, a life of gratitude is a life that will bubble and overflow, a life that will awaken regardless of the darkness that may surround you. Solomon deals with all this. He says, well, it doesn't matter whether you're lonely or not, ultimately, because life makes no sense. If life is like spitting in the wind. <laughs> oh, Solomon, oh, solo man. Then he comes and talks about popularity. And he talks about a king. He said, here's an old king who got old and wouldn't listen to anybody else. And then he says, a young king comes along and he listened to people and the old king's popularity fails. He says, I've seen all the living on the sun thronged to the side of the second lad who replaces him. He said, there's no end to all the people, to all who were before them, even the ones who will come later will not be happy for him. What's he saying? Here's somebody in a position of leadership and all of a sudden, people turn against him. He's not popular. Here comes some young person in the leadership. Everybody's applauding them. But Solomon says, there'll come a day he'll make some wrong decision, and they'll boo the person they've applauded. He said, he said that's the way it is with popularity. A hero today, a goat tomorrow. He'll play quarterback. How many of you ever played quarterback on a football team? Little league, whatever kind, a lot of, you know how it works, doesn't it, folks? I'll tell you, boy, you were great, and what happened to you today? That was yesterday. <laughs> ever preach a sermon? Boy, pastor, that was some sermon. 
But boy, this week, what? The wheels came off. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you, you see, we can go from mountaintop to valleys and let the world control our destiny and our feeling. And Solomon says, you know, it doesn't make any difference where you're on top or bottom, where you're a hero or you're being booed. He said, it's all without meaning. Boy, Solomon is right, except he leaves out the most important thing. You can't reckon with life on a flat land, humanistic, secular basis. You end up right where Solomon is. Life is spitting in the wind. But when the understanding that the S-O-N from above, the S-U-N entered into time and space and gave us the ability to know Jesus Christ. And we look at those areas of philosophy in life. We talk about, we discover that we are chosen and also we have to make a choice. In Jesus Christ, we were chosen for God so loved the world that whosoever, that's anybody regardless of the circumstances, we were chosen and now we have to choose and we choose to receive Christ to run my life and I'll not run my life to run your life and you'll not run your life and then all of a sudden we're in the family of God and all of a sudden all of these things we encounter begin to take on new life and eternal meaning. After the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, all the happy, 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 blessed, 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 blessed. You get there, and you know what Jesus says? He said, those thou who have been chosen, and they have chosen me to come into their life. He says, guess what? Guess who you are? He said, you are the salt of the earth. He says, you are the light of the world. Boy, that is gigantic. He said, a salt that's lost its flavor. By the way, salt never loses its flavor. It uses its flavor when you put a little pinch of salt in a bowl of soup that big. You won't taste the salt, will you? So we are salty as we're in Christ, but we lose our, our tang, our flavor, our thrust of our Christian life when it's so watered down with so much stuff that we do and we're involved in this world. It gets watered down. That's what, how salt loses its flavor. And what about light? You are the light of the world. Take these four things that we're dealing with just in this one chapter, and you take someone who is in Christ Jesus, and their life is salty, and their life turns on the lights. Take a salty Christian and someone who turns the light on injustice. Watch injustice run. Watch the power brokers who are pushing all the exploitation of people get out of the way when we simply turn on the light of our lives and we pour salt in that situation. That'll take care in justice in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you come and you take the next thing that we have. Not only was there injustice, there was success. Well, I'm not as successful. You take 
success and define it as discovering the will and purpose of God as to where you are and where I am, all of a sudden there is a salty life. There is a life that turns lights on wherever you go, illuminates every dark place. All of a sudden, that is success that will last here and forever. See the difference when you bring Jesus Christ in these situations? Changes everything. Revolutionizes everything takes things that are passing in transit and makes them permanent and eternal because it's a part of the kingdom of God Almighty on this earth. See the difference we have? And loneliness, can anybody be really lonely when you know there's the salt of Jesus in your life? There's a light of Christ lighting up all the dark places in your life. There's no room for loneliness. There's only room for ministry and meaning and significance as you touch the lives of others. Boy, it's such a powerful thing when you take all of this that Solomon is whining about and doesn't understand and thinks I can't make rhyme or reason out of it, and you just plug in a salty Christian that life is lighted up by Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something. It's a whole new world there. Popularity doesn't make any difference. They can boo or cheer, but you're on the team of God Almighty, and you are salty, and you're lighting up everything. You know God's a part of your life. See what happens when you take him who is above the sun and invite him to come into your life while we're under the sun. It takes care of everything, and it makes a life that seemingly does not have significance be eternally meaningful. Give you two quick things to take home with you from all of our study. Two quick Simple, basic things. Take that which is a liability in your life. I don't know what it is. All of us have liabilities, right? I came from a dysfunctional home. That's a liability. Not totally, but by the way, all of us came from dysfunctional homes. I hate to break that to you, but anyway. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I came from a home that was basically dysfunctional. My, my, my father, as far as I know, never said he loved me. I don't know if my mother ever did or not. And they were Christians, but that was just that, that area. And, and so here's what we have to do. Two things. Number one, take that which is a liability in your life and let it become an asset. Stay with that. The liability in your life, let it become an asset. Number two, don't go through deep water by yourself. Somebody has to be with you to guide you, to hold you back or push you forward. Don't go through deep water by yourself. Let me illustrate these two things quickly. Most of you probably never heard of someone by the name of Tom Sullivan. Tom Sullivan, graduate of Harvard, degree in sociology and counseling, uh, brilliant, skydiver, 35 different times he's come down, musician, greatly gifted, greatly gifted, a best-selling author. He's been on, in movies several times, MASH, Airplane, He's been on every talk show you can name in America. Uh, 
He, he's won two national wrestling championships. He was on an Olympic wrestling team. He, he, he's, he's an unbelievable athlete. He runs six miles every day in the sand. I mean, when he, when he speaks, people come by the thousands to hear him. And, and Tom is quite a guy. But, but I forgot to tell you one little thing about him. He's been blind since birth. He didn't know he was blind, he said, until he was eight years old. Good job of parenting that, wouldn't you say? Said so in the backyard one day playing, and he heard across the fence children, and said he heard crack, pow, crack. And he said, he realized children were playing. He asked his dad, he said, what are they doing? He said, they're playing baseball. He said, tell me about it. So his dad told his blind son about baseball, and the blind son got a little stick and threw it up and started to hit rocks and threw it up start hit rocks. And then he got a, something that would make a noise he would take. He would throw a baseball at this noise. He told his dad, he said, Dad, I want to play baseball. His dad said, oh, well, uh, what position would you like to play? <laughs> Being that he was totally blind. He said, Dad, I want to be a pitcher. I've got a good arm, good fast. He said, we'll see. So he goes to Little League coach. The coach lets him play. Somebody catches the ball from him from the catcher. The catcher emits a sound, and he begins to pitch. Now, can you imagine you're a nine-year-old on the other team, and you get up to the plate, and here's this blind pitcher that's throwing a fastball like no other kids you've ever seen that age. And he said he, he, he beamed two or three, hit several others, said they'd go to the box. They would lean way over the plate <laughs> because he would wind up. So he didn't play baseball very long, but he became a wrestler, champion wrestler. He said, sometimes when I begin to get pinned, he said, I have two glass eyes. I had a way to pop them out. He said, they'd always let go. (laughs) (laughs) And this was a theme of what he said. And Chuck Swindoll heard this address as he was speaking to the Million Dollar Roundtable there in Dallas. He said, Do you have a disadvantage? He said, don't waste your disadvantage. He said, people are not attracted to sameness. They're attracted to differences. Use your disadvantage, which is a difference, and it'll give you unique distinctiveness That'll change your life. That will add meaning and significance to your life. Somebody says, make mine the same. That doesn't interest anybody. But he used his blindness and is using his blindness in a powerful way. First principle, take that disability, that liability in your life, and see how God can use it and make it distinctive in what he would have you to do and how he would have you to live, first principle. Second principle, very quick and very simple. When you're going through deep water, and we'll all go through deep water, don't go through deep water alone. Now, before we end today's program, Dr. Young is in the studio to share more proven truth 
about the satisfaction that can only come from the Lord. Dr. Young, we've all experienced the emptiness that comes from chasing after happiness. What would you say to someone who's looking for true satisfaction in all the wrong places? Well, in the wrong, the wrong places, you keep looking, and you're just like Solomon. You'll never find it. Happiness is a byproduct. I've never found anybody who say, I just want to be happy. Happiness comes when you discover God's in your life and you discover his plan for your life and you're seeking to make a difference in the lives of others. And a byproduct of those who are serving and loving and giving and praying and working and sharing and listening and and ministering to others, you wake up one day and say, you know what? I haven't been thought about my own happiness, but I am very, very happy. And that gives us satisfaction and it gives life significance. Discover how God has wired you. Find your place of service, of worship, of ministry. And when you discover that, doesn't have to be a big place. It can be a little place, but God will honor it. Happiness comes as a byproduct of a life that's sold out to Jesus Christ, saying, Lord, how would you have me to live? What would you have me to do? How have you gifted me uniquely to stand in your kingdom in the 21st century? Have that agenda there? Hey, the byproduct will be happiness, and you're not looking for it. It just falls in your lap. Thank you, Dr. Young. You've been listening to The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Winning Walk is a listener-supported ministry. Your prayers and financial support allow us to bring proven truth to listeners around the world. Connect with us at winningwalk.org. That's winningwalk.org.